0: All right, welcome, guys. I am uh, excited to actually add a guest to the pod today, who's known me and Seth almost as long as we've known each other. Uh, so we've got Ryan Caradonna with us, who lived down the hall with us our first year at UVA. Is working on a new company in the music NFT space, and so we're excited to bring him on and chat about it. But I'm personally really excited. This is a guy who I've gotten to know really well over the past ten years, which is crazy. We started a company together, and I'm really excited to see that he's now on to his next venture. So.
1: Ryan, welcome to the pod. Yeah, thanks for the intro, Matt. Great to great to speak with you guys. You're really dating us by saying ten years ago we all met. <laughs> I think technically eleven. Yeah, I was gonna say it's actually more than that. But yeah, it's it's amazing to think that we were all just whatever we were, eighteen year old kids at the time, and Matt was eating peanut butter out of his with his fingers out of, <laughs> out of the jar and had about ten. Yeah, what do you like? You like Jif? You're a Jif guy, right? I'm now a
0: Trader Joe's brand guy. I
1: see. For anyone listening, Matt would have all the all the <laughs> you know cans of peanut butter just stacked on his little dorm desk. So fond memories of Bonnie Castle at UVA with these two, and I'm super excited to get into the conversation today. And I was allergic to peanut butter, and Matt's roommate. So this guy. I, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What a courteous say-
1: curtis- <laughs> roommate.
0: I basically said, as long as it won't kill you, then it's either I'm getting to Yeah. I love that. I love
1: that.
0: Forgot (laughs) about that. It's too funny. Cool, man. I I would love to start off here just by asking you about what are you working on? How do you get interested in the music space in the first place? Why this opportunity? I know that you've partnered with, with some cool people in the industry. So I'd love to hear just more about the um, product that you're
1: working on and then we can go from there. Yeah, for sure. Where to start? good question so i would say but let's start with let's start with crypto as a whole so getting into crypto i my first foray officially into crypto i had actually seen like silk road friends neighbors acquaintances using silk road at uva for legal illegal whatever purposes you you might have i wasn't a user but i saw people using it and that was my first introduction to bitcoin but i think it was like 20 or $50 $50 at a time when I first saw it in 2012, but to me, it was just another method of payment. I, it didn't really strike me as something that would be investable or even worth like speculating on. So it's funny to think back now, it just seemed like another like PayPal or Venmo or something like that. I remember seeing it in 2012 and being like, oh, this is interesting. It's a way to transact like on the dark web or like uh, Tor, which I think was like the browser that you had to like download to like to use Silk Road and some of those other early use cases where... Bitcoin kind of got the uh, reputation for being like a dark web only thing. Uh, Anyway, fast forward to to 2017. So I was in New York at JP Morgan in asset management and in the traditional finance lane on wall street, um, just trying to soak up as much information as I could from some of the smartest minds in finance and the Bitcoin and Ethereum craze came around again, the price shot up and that drove mainstream media interest. But for me, it was interesting because as a firm, our CEO, Jamie Dimon, who's pretty well known. I was a big part of the, uh, the bailout of the banks, the great financial crisis, and turning around Wall Street and really the American economy in 2008, 2009, he was very, and is very anti-Bitcoin, I think by sentiment. I think he's compared it to like rat poison. And but it's just interesting to, to see someone that like you respect and look up to and is very knowledgeable about these things, had a very anti-innovation stance on, on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. It was funny because I always tell the story. I was at JP Morgan and I came down the elevator one day. I went down to the lobby and we were doing a presentation on building on Ethereum rails internally and in JP Morgan in the lobby. And so I was like, this is so interesting that we have this idea at the high level that maybe this isn't the future. Maybe it is a scam. Maybe it's a rug pull, but internally we're seriously contemplating our own leather ledger technology being built on Ethereum. And so I didn't really know what Ethereum was at the time, but I was like, if this is any indicator of like where this world is going, I should be involved. If I had two extra pennies at the end of the day to, to rub together, i put it towards Ethereum, not really knowing what it was, but knowing, knowing that I would learn and grow in the ecosystem. So that was my foray in 2017, the crypto red pill, if you wanna use the matrix analogy. And ever since then, just been trying to learn and really get my hands dirty with whatever possible. In 2018, my brother and I, we started uh, an accelerator in the blockchain space So worked with three or four teams across the globe and trying to grow like their Reddits and their Twitter and really growing engagement and getting our hands dirty. Because for us, it was like, we know there's something here. We want to get involved more actively than just like owning a cryptocurrency. So we had owned coins that did really well, Litecoin, Stellar, but At the end of the day, it wasn't anything that moved the needle for us from a professional perspective. It was simply like an investment that did well, but that like you just did on your own in a computer and had no real life impact, right? Like you're not making connections, you're not building your network, you're not Building something that other people are using. And so we always had this idea that we needed to really be in the space in order to grow, I guess, our careers and our network and all that good stuff. So fast forward to, to 2021, and the same sort of explosion happened in NFTs that we saw in ICOs at following Ethereum in 2017 and 2018, just like mainstream, like there was a shotgun taken to the mainstream interest in NFTs. Okay, what is an NFT? It's funny that 18 months ago, no one really knew what fungible meant or like what an NFT like could even be. But now I would say like everyone that I've talked to has had at least exposure to what it is like NFTs are, and they might've seen someone on Twitter talk about it or whatever. But we had, and Matt, you probably know this, but me and Aaron, my brother had done music a and work on the side for the last 10 years or so. And so we worked with athletes, but also musicians. helping them out as they started their career and figuring out my brother's corporate attorney figuring out like the legal aspect of their contracts whether they're doing a record deal or whatnot and then me doing the finance side of it being like okay here are your projections you're going to be a third round pick in the mlb draft or you can expect to grow your streams and your audience this way so we informally advised uh, a handful of artists music artists over the last 10 years and one of them actually reached out to us when this NFT boom was going off. His name's Rapta, R-A-P-T-A. I'll plug him. Go check him out on Spotify. He was, he was like, hey, I'm really interested in the NFT thing. Like, I see it as an opportunity to give ownership back to my fans, get them involved, and be able to communicate directly with them. Like, I want to do something. Like, do you guys want to join me on this journey and want to see what this is all about? We were like, we don't really know what NFTs are, but same sort of attitude of let's figure it out. Then the only way to figure that out is to get our hands dirty. So... We joined him in that initial drop that he did for his own own fans. So he dropped 20 NFTs, each representing 1%, uh, a 1% stake in the single that he dropped, which is, uh, the single is dangerous, which is also on Spotify. So it's attached to a real song. And the idea was that if a fan bought one of those 20 NFTs, that they would hold 1% of the royalty and income streams of the song on Spotify and whatever platforms. I think we learned a great deal from that experiment is is what I want to call it, we sold it out. And then for us, it was really not selling out in 10 minutes and making $6,000, which is very impactful for an an artist of his size or an independent artist. It was like, okay, wow, we have something that we can actually bottle up and then apply to, this is way bigger than just Raptor's career. This can be applied across the music spectrum. And initially we saw it as a product that fit really well with independent artists, but then we started to think about it more and, and it made a lot of sense for also artists that were signed to be just a new monetization and net new revenue uh, channel for them in a way for them to extend their brand. We've been sprinting on EQ as a company since, uh, since August, September of, of 2021. So about six months ago, which is a decade in crypto, as you guys know, hence the bags under my eyes, but That's a quick rundown of kind of the timeline of how we got to to EQ and and where we are today, but I'm I'm happy to dive in on any of the specifics or EQ keys or wherever you guys want to take it. That's awesome. That was
2: awesome. (laughs) Matt, do you you have something off the bat? I I I do, yeah. So
0: um, one, I I love the story and it's also cool because when we were starting a company together, it was basically like turning sports tickets into financial derivatives. And you're doing the same thing here where you're taking like an alternative asset And I think it's cool and I just wanna be more specific on what the opportunity is that you're chasing because this this whole world of like web three intersecting with music is pretty broad. And it seems like a lot of people are trying to help artists like monetize and build an audience and you know get investors that are gonna go out and hunt down new followers for them. So is the opportunity that you're chasing specific, basically like turning royalty streams into a financial derivative that people can invest in or is it something more broadly to do with artists so that's one on the mechanical side. I'm also curious as a follow-up, like your brother is comes from a law background. How do you legally go through the process of doing that and turning yeah. it into a financial derivative? So I'm just curious to learn more about both the opportunity and then mechanically how you do this.
1: Yeah, you guys are good. You're asking the right questions. And <laughs> I should have expected nothing less. But that was actually spot on the reason we I would say cycled away from royalties. So we started off as like, okay, this is going to be our, our core product and Royal is another another big name in the space. Yeah, wow, he's pioneering that. They've raised a bunch of money and they're doing really cool things. For us, it was one, the Howey test, which Matt, you're talking about the securities issue. And so, looking at mm-hmm. the Howey test, and there's, I think, four benchmarks as to what indicates whether it's a security or whether it's just like a utility or a commodity. And we had conversations with legal advisors. So not just my brother acting as a pseudo in-house counsel, but also external counsel. And the waters were very murky. And that was one of the reasons we figured that companies like Royal were raising a lot of money because they were building up their balance sheet to be able to have these discussions, whether inside or outside of court, to be able to fortify kind of their own product line. And so one for us, it was murky in terms of legality, royalties. And then two, We just honestly saw the experiment that we did with Raptor and then uh, a couple artists thereafter that economically royalties aren't a great investment vehicle for fans as they stand today. So just walking through the simple economics of the Raptor experiment, once again, just to put hard numbers to it, it was $300 for uh, 1% ownership of the NFT and $300, as you guys for better or for worse know, isn't. That much in NFT land. I know that sounds wild, but that's 0.1 ETH. (laughs) And and if you look at the average NFT mint on on crypto Twitter or whatever, it's likely 0.08 ETH or 0.1 ETH or something very similar. So, first note 0.1 ETH, $300, pretty typical. So, we were selling 1% of the overall song's royalties to each fan. The break even for that, like doing the quick calculus, knowing that it's 4.004 cents or 5 cents per stream, the break even is six to 7 million million Spotify streams to break even on that $300 like investment, if you will. And as you guys can understand it, that's a really hard number to reach for an artist with 10, 50, even 100,000 monthly followers on Spotify. That's a decently large number. Now, when you consider that we were doing 1%, not... 0.1%, which is what you're commonly going to see through existing, I guess, competitors or marketplaces out there. Now you're talking 60 to 70 million plays to break even. The way I describe it in like layman's terms is like you buy a $300 NFT, you get your quarterly report and payout, and it says $4.60. You're going to be really upset at whoever sold you that because you're like, I'm never going to make my money back. So we just wanted to do right by the fans at the end of the day, and we realized that. It, it's a buzzy headline to to say we're on un, unlocking royalties, cash streams, but yeah, legality, the consumer experience, and then three, it really makes labels mad because they don't want to hear that you're disintermediating them. So we saw those three as as a reason not to bark up that tree.
2: It makes sense what you're saying, and that was also I had read some tweets about the Nas NFT sale about how exactly what like what you're saying that no one will ever make any money from it economically it doesn't really make sense so it's more of a collectible so it's yeah it's really helpful to hear you break down the economics of of how it was working for them or even with one even when you were 10xing the the royalty it still didn't really work economically so yeah
1: yeah and, well, and oh, sorry. Nas, I was gonna say with Nas too it's interesting because even an artist his respectfully he's had an, had an incredible career but I think we can all agree he's not necessarily on the vertical part of his S-curve as like an artist. And I think he would probably even tell you that too. He's like a mature artist with billions of streams. And so for him, it's hard to capture really that investor sentiment of the user to be like, I want to invest in this because I think this song is going to go to 60 or 70 million. He's not necessarily in that like, I'm starving, I need to make it growth mode. So that's where it's misaligned too with, okay, we can get big names on the platform, but it's like, unless... They're really trying to put out those hundred million view songs like a uh, Justin Bieber or Ariana Grande, then that doesn't even align with with the consumer experience. So anyway, I, that's in an the side. Yeah, small sub note.
0: Just nerd out on the numbers a little bit more. So one percent of the royalties in a song, it, it's implying a valuation for a song of six hundred thousand dollars. If I did the math, I'm curious how much a song is worth generally for an artist yeah. and you hear a lot of figures thrown around most, I forgot what the number is, but like most artists don't make more than $50,000 from Spotify. And so I'm curious how much songs are generally worth for an artist like Rapta or even generally.
1: It's, that's a fantastic question. I would have to look up what recent ca- catalogs have as an asset have been a pretty popular like asset in private markets. People are speculating, I forget who... Someone just had a massive sales, like a couple hundred million. Obviously, Taylor Swift's was a big deal in the news with, with Scooter Braun. But the interesting thing that I've, that I've seen in a couple of Twitter threads is like the consumption of music. OK, so it's the idea, the ethereal idea that something is worth what people are paying for it or what they're willing to pay for it in a marketplace. And the idea that consumers have been hooked on to a buffet model that is Spotify is like good luck trying to rip that out of their hands like it's worth $9.99 a month and that's what it will be until I don't know there's some nuclear explosion that makes everyone reset and build from the ground up but like until then like it's really hard to to pull out the song as an asset and be like we're going to value it at this because that's just not the way that the industry is set up but it's a very interesting question to, to think about I'm not sure the answer
0: we can popcorn. I'm going to let you ask a question, but I'll ask after yeah. about this intermediation.
1: No, I was just going to, uh,
2: I was just interested on on the direction that you guys were taking after kind of the experiment
1: with the draft. <sighs> yeah, absolutely. And so I'll give a shout out to Alexis Ohanian, who Matt, we gave a friendly pitch to back in the day with Fanatics, but got bodied <laughs> because it was borderline illegal. So it's funny <laughs> to be Working in those waters once again, but I'm looking forward to the opportunity to pitch Alexis on this because I think this is a model that makes a lot more sense and probably very similar uh, to an idea that we use a lot in terms of comps in Reddit. And so building communities first rather than assets. So one of the things that we learned from doing a couple drops in the fall is that when you tokenize an asset, so a single or an album, there's not a whole lot of glue to the community aspect if you're a user. So if you know Matt Blank drops a single, let's say March 1st, uh, it's gonna be a banger, But he's, and he's gonna market it, and I'm gonna buy it as a fan, or I'm gonna buy the NFT as a fan. But when he goes to drop another song April 1st, I'm left in the dust and forgotten. It becomes a string of transactions uh, and a very transactional experience between the artist and the fan to where it's like, okay, how do you really bind the community together? If you're just continuing to release new songs, new albums, new assets along the line. And so within that frame, we were like, okay, we don't want to just do NFTs for songs or albums or royalties. Like how do we want to build this? And really it came back to, okay, let's just do a base community model. And so what that means is that we're doing, we're spinning up NFT communities for artists and how we're doing it is we're, we're starting with a base NFT. And so you'll have a matte blank with a plain white t-shirt NFT. And then when he goes to drop his new single, if he wants to attach any utility to that, if it's, hey, pay $5 and listen to the song early, or pay $20 and hear the entire mixtape early, or have a meet and greet in person for $50, that we're going to have an accessory piece that you can then layer onto the base NFT. So it's, a, it's going to be a dynamic NFT in the same way that let's say Mutant Ape Yacht Club took Serum to the regular Bored Apes and then it turned into a Mutant Ape is they have the base Bored Ape, but they also have the Mutant Ape. And the idea is that you can signal your identity and the fact that, Hey, I did buy the meet and greet for $50 and that gets layered onto the identity of being a Matt Blank fan in the first place. So that might be signified by a, by a crown or a chain. Or, or a jacket, the plaid jacket that, that Matt's wearing. And because I attended a meet and greet with Matt, now I have the white t-shirt and the plaid jacket mm. signifying that I lived that experience and, and bought that utility. So that's how we see it rolling out and being actual glue to the community piece that is like these artists' careers. So it becomes less transactional. It becomes, okay, Seth has been a part of this community since X date, because that's verified on blockchain. He minted the base NFT then. And he's participated in the community by doing these X, Y, and Z things over the years. So now I have a good sense of him and his user behavior and how he supports me as an artist. And now I can engage with him more adeptly than just purely on a transactional level.
2: That's, is, is there an idea that the base NFT, if you buy this base NFT for an artist that's early on in their career, and then they go on to become really su- successful, that base NFT will... Be more valuable in the future, and you would be able to sell that NFT, or is that a part of the
1: concept? So, there's still an element of scarcity, there always will be, and that's important in notating value because the ethos of Web3 is okay, you don't have to be rich, you can make up for being rich by being early, right? And so, if I bought the mad NFT and he blew up to be the next kid, Leroy, Justin Bieber, whatever, the idea is that. There are still only a fixed quantity of those base NFTs. There might be a hundred. Let's just use a clean example. And the idea is, yeah, I might've minted it for free in 2015 or 2000, 2000 what? 2011 when we all met. But 10 years later, it's as you are embarking on your own career, starting your own company, or in this case, an artist like winning a Grammy, the idea is that if you're still funneling exclusive utilities, whether it's merchandise or experiences through this core community is as Mm. your your support that absolutely you minted it for free in the same way that crypto punks were minted for free but they're worth way more now today because of the influence and utility that's flowing through them absolutely
0: imagine, that's awesome yeah you, you mentioned disintermediation earlier and i'm curious what you think the role of agencies will be going forward because I, I guess one way of thinking about this is that you could disintermediate agencies by getting artists like uh, forward in exchange for what they would typically go through as the normal process of getting discovered, getting front-loaded some money by an agency, and then now having a 360 deal where they have to go back to the agency and give them a cut of revenue going forward. Do artists, is that what the goal ultimately is of either you or the industry is to disintermediate agencies, or is there still a role for them going forward?
1: That's a billion-dollar question. I, th- I would say We always like to use the the sliding scale of web two and web three. I would say the web three like pure decentralized ethos is to get to the future where the crowd can fully A&R the artist supply a $20,000 DeFi loan where we each chip in $12 and that acts as the the fronting uh, mechanism that basically record labels are putting up today. How soon it takes to get there. We So that's part of our thesis. We think it takes a lot longer than people think. I came from the ticketing industry before business school at UCLA. And the biggest thing that we heard ever since 2017 at at DTI was ticketing is going to be the first thing to, to go on the blockchain. Like you're going to be able to track user data and The artist is going to be able to get clips of every single uh, transaction that occurs because in the current model, it's once it gets out of the artist's hands, it's just Ticketmaster, StubHub, whatever, making money on those transactions. Beyonce doesn't see a cent of the third or fourth or fifth or 20th transaction. We heard all these things, but internally, we knew that the ticketing industry was so bundled, jumbled, and like... uh, Cartel-like behavior. I don't mean to use cartel in a very negative sense, but just like in terms of like deals and relationships, that it was very. It's going to be very hard to unbundle that. The music industry is like very similar, if not like even more tighter, in the sense that the power structures today basically give labels a chokehold on the ability to have fifty artists come to come knocking on their door, looking for a loan, basically to to jumpstart their career. And these labels have the capital basis. They're basically Like financial institutions with subject matter expertise in music to be able to make the call and say, Hey, out of these 50, these 30, we'll give you guys a shot. And we know two of you guys are going to make it, but that's the model. It's like a venture capital model at the end of the day. And so I don't see that model being moved away from anytime soon, just because it is a proven model in terms of, okay, we get people in the door, we put them on our streaming platforms, we distribute them to our partners that we've had for decades. And Spotify plays into that ecosystem. And then we see how it plays out. And yeah, at the end of the day, an artist, the the two or three artists that blow up out of those 50, they're always going to wish that they had more negotiating power, more of that pie. But that's just like a factor of success, so that's the current like status quo 2.0 belief, and then I gave you the 3.0 belief. We just think it's a sliding scale that slowly moves towards the 3.0 thing. So what does that mean? It means the economics probably get a little better for artists. They don't have to give up 80% of their royalties and their masters or recordings as they go in. As alternatives like us, like Royal, like whatever these new monetization vehicles pop up, the idea is that they they could probably in in theory have more negotiating power to say, Hey, like I do have these alternative platforms. So maybe the split looks more like 70, 30 or 60, 40, and maybe it eventually gets to where there's equilibrium in in the record playing a smaller part, because I think people would argue that their cost structure has gone down over the years. So back in the seventies, eighties, they used to be really involved in getting your CDs and your vinyls to the store and promoting it and marketing and on a billboard or something. But, day and age it's pretty okay we push you to spotify we have some influencer campaigns maybe try to drive you on tiktok but it's a very low cost structure compared to what it used to be in like physical labor so there's an argument that like the margins could be compressed on the on the label and industry side in favor of 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 the musician and so if i had to give you a like thesis that's like the macro thesis that the economics start to shift towards the artist and away from the label as we slide towards this 3.0 thing But again, I I and team think this 3.0 fully decentralized thing might not ever happen, but let's call it 2.8, 2.9 is at least five or 10 years away, unless someone, my only caveat ever is going to be Drake. Unless someone like Drake says, I'm going independent and I'm doing this thing. Then as you guys understand it, the whole industry follows. And then it all goes downstream way quicker than we thought. But that's a long-winded way of painting the picture that we see at EQ.
2: It seems really reasonable to me and just thinking about like where things are going, and I like your, your like the way of describing it as this sliding scale, and I think sometimes right, people think, oh, this new technology is here, and the world is going to change in a month or in a year when in reality, especially when there's these systems that an industry is built around it takes a long time to to go from point a to point b totally yeah
1: and like just being completely candid we we were those people we get really excited about the technology too and we were like wow it is gonna flip a switch till everyone's gonna be on this blockchain thing but it was only through i would say like testing talking to customers like really putting our neck out in the market to be like Mainstream music fans, at least that's who our target audi- audience is, they're not ready for this kind of thing. Um, they're not ready to buy cryptocurrency even. That's still a complicated thing, whether I go to Coinbase and buy Ethereum, Solana, whatever. Transferring it to a MetaMask, knowing when to show up on time at 7pm to click Mint. What does Mint mean? Why is it asking me to sign a transaction? Is this a fr- There's just way too much friction in that experience right now. So that has a long way to go. So it's not even just like the industry economics and that whole picture, but it's very much the end user music fan that that has a long way to go. And honestly, that's helped dictate a lot of what we're trying to build, a lot of what we're building right now. So for instance, lowering that barrier to entry, the friction on the user from the user standpoint, we're moving away from Ethereum. So we had originally thought let's use ETH, but aside from just gas fees, it's, it's the MetaMask thing. It's Buying crypto and then trying to understand it as a real investment. Because once you, again, once you paid a certain amount for something, you expect it to bear some sort of either cash flows or utilities or value or whatever. And so we're really moving away from that model and we're, we're trying to remove as much friction. And so what we're going to do is building on flow. And I know we talked about this earlier before we started recording, but. I'm super excited about Flow as a builder, because Flow is going to enable us to have users sign up with an email. And so sign up with an email that creates a wallet, like, boom, <laughs> you're, you could type in mattblank blank 11 at Gmail and, and be good to go rather than having to worry about secret recovery phrases and this, that, and the other. And that's just a, a quick advantage on the user experience side. And then also being able to, Purchase any type of utility add-ons or the accessories that I mentioned earlier with credit card. And so that's just massive. And meeting fans where they are, instead of having them even pay, even if Solana is gasless or transaction feeless, it's still a barrier to go take your phantom wallet, plug it in, and verify any type of transaction. So we're trying to make that as seamless as possible. And, and flow is is where we're seeing that experience yeah. being optimized. And that's NBA Top Shots
2: also built on flow and for similar reasons, I'm assuming, where people can go on and buy the N- NBA Top Shot NFTs with their credit card.
1: Exactly. And it's almost like forgetting it's, I, whoever said it, that like, the winner in the space is the one who makes the user forget about like the technology. It's like, at, at first we had EQ uh, as EQ NFT. That was our company name because the NFTs were hot and we were just trying to think of a good name. And I was like, no company out of 2001 or 1999 was like e q h t m l . c o m like like we need to get away from this like underlying technology conversation and really talk about like what the user cares about do they care that it's an that they know it's an nft whatever they can think it's like a stock for all we care whatever gets them to view it as ownership and utility. That's all that matters. And I was talking to a friend earlier today about Top Shot, and he was like, that was a big reason why I dove into Top Shot. It, was, it made it really easy to understand. I was buying a LeBron James highlight. I collected baseball cards as a kid, and it made sense to me that there's a 500 of these, and I own one of them or two of them. And it was credit card and, and email. I'm like, that's what it took to purchase. And I had a liquid market where I could sell it the next day if I didn't want to hold it anymore. And so that's, that's the audience that we're going towards. And that's not to say that any of the other like web three music companies are doing it wrong. I just think that they're more slated towards a different audience and they're trying to tug people towards this 3.0 thing a little harder than we are. And we're just trying to onboard at 2.1 and then bring people along.
0: I think that's absolutely the right mentality. And I I think, That's a really apt analogy of like companies in 1999 might have been like valuable because they were internet companies, but the 99% that were wiped out were probably valuable or or got valuable in the moment because they were branding themselves as internet companies, but (laughs) weren't actually delivering on that value. I'm curious, really quickly, where the name came from. So, what's EQ, and how do you come (laughs) up with the name?
1: Since you were talking about it, yeah, EQ. We like to say is like a double or triple entendre. So, EQ. Um, stands for a couple of things for us. EQ is immediately uh, a music term. So equalization. So our equalizer and figuring out how to like tone in the frequencies. So my, so Raptor, my co-founder. Is a music artist, and obviously that's been a huge part of his career. So we wanted to, to mix, mix in that kind of meaning in terms of refining, like the use of technology in this instance to really address the right fan, right? That's the mess- messaging and story we want to tell there. Emotional intelligence. So I like to say, in the information age that we live in today, everything that I could ever want to know the answer to is right here in my iPhone. So, a real differentiator, in, in my opinion, and our opinion, is EQ. IQ is easily attained through the internet and Google, EQ is not easily attained. And that's where we want to be able to differentiate ourselves and emotional intelligence and knowing both our artists, customers, as well as like our end user customers and what they want to see and built within the ecosystem. And then three, I would say EQ stands for equity. And so that's leveling the playing field. in terms of like, equity and fairness, but equity in terms of ownership. And that's a big part of web three is, again, you don't have to be rich, but if you believed in something enough or you were early enough, or you were involved enough and you participated enough that you own a part of whatever you're participating in. So in our instance, it's the community. And if you own a piece of a community to, to Seth's question earlier, it has a hundred pieces and then it turns into supporting a big artist you should be rewarded for that. So really giving ownership back to the people who care the most about the art, which is the musicians and and their fans. That's a triple entendre. And there's a lot there, but that's what EQ It means a lot of things uh, to us.
0: I'd love to, I want to get you out of here in 15 minutes. So how about we jam on a couple of business ideas for the next like 10, then we'll do some carve outs and we'll get you out of here. What do you think? Love it. Let's do it. All right. So you're obviously working on this idea. Any others you want to share with us? Any other brilliant ideas that you've been jamming on? Wow. Otherwise we can get started. We could buy you some time.
1: Yeah. 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 Give me some time. I want to hear your okay. guys best
0: ideas. Seth, you want to go or you want me to go? Go ahead. Yeah.
2: I had mostly questions for Ryan. So
0: yeah, we can do questions for Ryan. Maybe I'll share an idea. And if it's not interesting, we can go back to questions, but Ryan, I still think that fanatics could work. And I'm curious if you think so too, <sighs> given your experience, having worked on EQ for a little bit. So very quickly <laughs> in less than 30 seconds, which Seth already knows, but Ryan and I had started a, a company together in college, basically selling championship sports tickets as financial derivatives. So the idea would be that like for the NCAA tournament, UVA can make it, Duke can make it, but not more than two teams can make it. So you could price options in a way where basically you could invest the proportional odds of what, however likely it was that your team can make it to the championship. And then if they made it, you'd get a ticket at no further cost. And we played around with business funnels on top of that. Like we were talking about marketplaces where you'd be able to sell and buy throughout the season. I'm, I'm curious if you think that would be a good use case for blockchain or if you think that the idea could work overall and maybe part of this is intertwined with ticketing, which you were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah, I think the model definitely could work. There's a couple of threats. is like just pure exposure to gambling um, is, is available these days or becoming increasingly available. And I think that's something that was like helping us back in 2014 or 2015 or whenever we were building was like, It's not legal to just go bet on the NCAA basketball game down the street, but in a bunch of states it is these days. So our fanatics was like a way to get exposure to that asset class, if you will, or or entertainment class that I think is a little more threatened today just by being able to get direct exposure. And then two, I would say the threat is like again, finding like a ticket partner or inventory partner to where you can fulfill the tickets and at large the experiences. So I remember when you actually went on a mission to figure out what exactly it would cost to send someone to the final four, which we ended up selling, fulfilling the tickets to, which was a very cool like experience. But I, I remember you came back being like, yo, we got a, we got a problem. Like, It's not necessarily even like the (laughs) get-in tickets that are the issue. Like they might be $180 to the final four to sit in Lucas Oil Stadium in the top row, like massive stadium. It's the fact that, and this is so funny looking back because we're just naive college students that didn't know better, but we're like, it's the flight, it's the hotel, it's the food. And it's if I got a family of four, what am I doing for entertainment that isn't the final four games itself? And so I think that is still one of the biggest One of the biggest pieces to that experience, like that whole business model that I think is just really tough. And then I think the more pure play option of sports gambling is is probably just a more seamless play for anyone that wants to play in, in that arena.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think that there are even services now like Swap, where if you own a futures bet, then you could sell it throughout the course of the season. So maybe that yeah. would even invalidate some of the value here. Where like If you got the Bengals last year at phenomenal odds and during the course of the season, it, it was pretty clear they were going to go to the playoffs and you could sell it for a little bit of a gain. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't even know if but, that would work. I want to throw,
1: throw a question to your guys as well. Actually, I want to make, make a bold statement. Do we... I'm curious if you guys know, how many like, active users does Instagram have?
2: Isn't it like 2 billion like, or something
1: like yeah, that? Remember, two, 2 billion? Is that what it is?
0: I would guess it's okay. in the billions. It's at least one, I would guess. Okay,
1: I will make the bold claim that in five, within five years, that will be 50% less, at least. Ooh. And, and so I want to get your guys' mind thinking... Okay on like cookies and admittedly I'm biased. I live in an NFT echo chamber. So I see everything as a nail to be hit with an NFT hammer, but (laughs) I really do believe in the thesis that NFTs as a tool and a technology have the ability to replace cookies as like an underlying tracking mechanism and data collection mechanism. So I'm curious, what are some of the companies that you guys know that are really focused in on like data? And I know Matt, this is probably right up your alley. You're probably thinking of Eight Sleep right now, but Eight Sleep or Whoop or like, what companies are interesting to you guys in the data space or would be affected by cookies? Because obviously Instagram very much is affected so by that.
2: Is, is the idea that because data will be tracked in a different way, Instagram will become less valuable is that the connection there because i guess part of where my mind goes to with i i buy totally that instagram's active users will be 50 percent less because of competing social networks where people
1: will bleed off into other networks so yeah. i think The NFTs will unlock new social media platforms that will leverage the technology and then return that data straight to the creators, which is a huge wedge for platforms like Instagram that monetize that data first and then give the creators a cut. There are so many horses in the race trying to create basically the revenue stream to the creator first and then give the platform like a cut. And EQ is one of them, quite frankly. I have to,
0: oh, go that, hi, yeah. hi. No, you got it.
2: I, I was just going to say, I think, I, I think, yes, that, that makes sense. It makes sense that if you can incentivize creators to be on a platform, then that is where the content will be. And that is where the people will end up going. I think that the, the one area where I'm less sure is with these social networks, I think that it ends up being people go to, the most addicting platform, which right now is, is TikTok. And people are just addicted to it. And the people are addicted to Instagram. They're addicted to all of them. And I guess there is some case where maybe if there was an NFT version of TikTok, then the creators would move. But it's very hard, I think, with the network effects to get people to like to switch. I'm wondering what will be like the catalyst? Money is more addicted. I was going to say, you know it's more addicting
1: than content? Money. Content plus money.
2: Yeah, so I wonder, like, what will be the catalyst to actually get people to, to switch, right, and, and move over, and maybe it is just like you said, like it's a big creator doing it, making the move, right, and then that kind of Mr. Beast switches to the NFT version, and that starts moving people over, or maybe even forces Google's hand or TikTok's hand to to turn it into an NFT platform themselves before they get eaten by someone else. But it's an interesting thought experiment. So that's
1: the, that that. You poked into something that I also love talking about and having debate is just like this idea that the next social media platform, the next killer has to be web three native in my opinion. And again, I'm happy to be proven wrong on any of these things. That's why we're putting it immutably in the podcast. I just think you have the blockbuster problem, right? Of Netflix and blockbuster. Like it's really hard when you're making billions of dollars as TikTok to go disrupt yourself and say, we're going to flip the economics on its head in terms of the creator economics and how we pay out our customers, they can do it. They could certainly do it. Right? Yeah. It, it takes a lot of gut, I would say. It's like the, it's what, what the innovator's dilemma or. Yeah. Matt, I, I know this is drilled into your head. Come on now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Professor <laughs> Professor Christensen, right?
0: Yeah. I'm taking the class right now. So spot on.
1: I am and a. This guy's just listening to me blabber and he's got. No, those it perfect. You it.
0: I am curious though, because I, I think to Seth's point, like the platforms do have some level of power and I'm curious how the transition will go from platforms owning followers to individual creators owning followers. And one example of this that's come up recently is you'll get someone like Ninja, who's not an artist, but he went from being a Twitch creator to then going over to Mixer and then it, they struggled to get him followers and then Mixer shut down. And he went back to Twitch. I, I'm curious how this transition will have to look in order for creators to be able to port their followers over from platform to platform or in a way where the platforms themselves don't have that much power because right now they really do. And it's hard to see that
1: changing for the next few years. So I agree with you hundred percent. And it's always interesting, like, thinking about the cycles of innovation. But one thing that NFTs have really down to the space that I see firsthand is brought an incredible amount of, of capital to, to the builders in the space. But as you guys know, having built startups yourselves, there's three to four year delay on what's being built in the last six months to what's really going to be hooking and crossing the chasm uh, in terms of end users in three to four to five years. So all these, the multi-billion dollar funds from like, the Andreessen, Sequoias, Panteras, you name it, like all these big funds have, have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars that are getting deployed right now into the Web3 space, into the NFT space. So that that is like super exciting for me to know that it's on the horizon because exactly what you're talking about, it's too soon. It, it, there's just not, there's not a critical mass of, of users that are willing to take it on. There's a challenge in, in, in fighting sentiment to be like, I, I know a, a good friend of mine, Derek Chang from Eternal.gg, they basically do Top Shot for gamers on Twitch. And I think one of the things he's mentioned is just overall sentiment in gaming is actually, I want to say like net negative towards NFTs, which is surprising. You think those would be the people that would embrace it. Like they're already in the Discord. They're already understand the like play to earn mechanisms or World of Warcraft and, and getting paid for for what your contributions are. But I that is like a good temperature check for me is mainstream is just not there. The user behavior is not there. The sentiment is not there because people have been rugged. If you aren't a veteran (laughs) in NFTs or crypto until you've lost 80% on a coin in two thousand seventeen or whatever, or you bought a pizza in 2013 or whatever, like everyone's got some sort of story where they got scammed or rugged or whatever. And and I think it's just the maturity cycle of NFTs and look for it in the next two to three years to be like, wow, like- it would happen very slowly, but then all at once, a new TikTok came on and, and literally everyone's using it. Yeah.
2: And I, I think that goes back to what you were saying before, Ryan, about it's about the user experience and not about the, it's a technology and people are using it because it's an NFT and the if TikTok, the next TikTok, you know, will just be on crypto rails yep. and people will use it because it's addicting or a great experience. and there's money involved, right? You so, so coins in your profile. It'll just be built in totally. And I, I think that, that that makes a lot of sense and, and makes sense with what you, you're building as well.
1: Yeah. But yeah, this is all super exciting. That's, that's taking a step back. Huh? I, that's why I love crypto and, and Web3 is that everyone's starting from the same level playing field like you could be 20 you could be 50 you could be 80 it's like the most you could have in terms of experience is five to ten years or in <laughs> nfts like zero to 18 months so it's just an awesome space to get involved i encourage every single person that i talk to just buy an nft or try to like get involved in twitter because there's just so much potential in just being like a warm body and, and like standing around and learning and it's a very cooperative space right now like a phrase, as you guys know, like wag me, we're all going to make It's like very prevalent. And and I always say to that, it's like wag me is like the the phrase of the day of the year. But as we know, as having seen traditional industries, that's not always going to be the case. Like sharp elbows are eventually going to come in through capitalism whatever. But right now it is very much a, we can all cooperate and learn and grow together. Anyways, that's my, that's my little sappy spiel behind getting into <laughs> Web3 for anyone who's uh, curious.
2: One quick question, I was curious because Matt asked this before we hit record, but now I want to know, is how has fundraising been impacted by the, the, you know, crypto, volatile crypto market in in general and just how is that going?
1: Yeah, there's like a meme that I'm thinking of in my head and memes around the world because it describes so much in just one picture, but it's the guy who's rubbing his hands together behind the tree in the yellow suit licking his lips. And and that's how I feel like all these investors, these institutional investors are because there's nothing better than investing in a bear market when you have a billion dollars of dry capital. And so (laughs) for them, it's valuations just went down. This is awesome. We're going to get more ownership on the cap table or the $2 million we put towards the company is going to go further in the way of actually building product and less like marketing hype and stirring up uh, crypto Twitter or whatever. So from the in institutional investor side, I, I think it's a great thing for them that markets have slowed down. I would say for anyone that's actually building anything that has longevity, it's also a great thing because as, as someone who's looking for talent, like selfishly price just went down. There's not as many alternatives. There's not 20,000 NFT projects that a web three or web two developer can join. So for me, trying to bring in the best talent I can, it's actually very helpful. Like the money in the bank account doesn't change, but being able to, you know, hire someone for a hundred thousand instead of one twenty is, is helpful for us trying to run a business. I would say before, before we started the call, one thing that I wanted to emphasize that's important though, about how we're building an EQ is like, we're, we're trying to be as like market neutral as possible in the way that like we build our infrastructure. And so building out a model that's built on community, so interacting with not only the artists, but other people you make friends with in, in the community, just Reddit. And in, in the future, instead of if you're going to a Matt Blank uh, concert at Crypto.com Arena, You're going to have people to meet up with. It's not just going to be like, I have to drag a friend along. It's like, I have a hundred people that are LA Matt Blank fans. This is perfect. You can't tell me that's not a better fan club model. And so really just building through community and then the utility layers, that's more of a consumption model and what you paid, whether it's $20 or $50 is what you're going to get in terms of value out of that. And then at the end of the day, you don't really care what the price of Ethereum or Bitcoin or even flow is because it doesn't affect the value of the utility that you got out of the community or the digital or in real life experiences. So I think that's going to be a big issue for companies that are building solely on crypto rails, that price does matter. A good example where price does matter, and I I know we didn't get into it, but we did an EQ a corporate NFT just to build out our minimum viable community. We sold 176 keys, NFTs, and we we did over 50 ETH. We sold out in four hours, did 50 ETH in, in proceeds. That was like... The two days before, it was at the 33 or 3400 when we did that. Then two days later, it bombed down to 2600, and I was like, "Guys, we got to move to stable coin ASAP." So <laughs> that's just like a tangible example, like of losing 20, 30 thousand dollars, like in the course of 48 hours, with nothing to do with your business. That is just like market, market, however the market went is is how the bank account went. So I would look very closely on projects that are building on purely crypto rails, look at how they treat their treasury. They have to have a very prudent treasury. If your favorite 10 K PFP project doesn't have a treasurer, that's a problem because their treasury probably just dropped off 40% or whatever each top to bottom has been in the last two or three months. So that is very important. Thankfully, it's not really a part of our model that we have to worry too much about, but it's definitely something we're keeping an eye on because I this is another side that I would love to pull on if we had more time, but NFT mergers and acquisitions, I think are going to be a major the landscape moving forward in terms of consolidation as the markets trend sideways or go down and projects run out of money. There's a ton of talent that's coming out of all of these projects, designers, engineers, business people, financiers, and the war for talent is definitely not going to be slowing down in crypto anytime soon. So we are keenly keeping an eye out for kind of all these things in the ecosystem. Because
0: these are a lot of things that people are getting smarter on together that you didn't think you needed to know about a year ago. Like even the idea of having a treasurer for some kind of NFT project or a DAO, I would not have thought of until this. And it makes total sense when you describe it because yeah, having the volatility of keeping your entire treasury in ETH would be horrendous.
1: scary, man. And and one of the younger members of our team he was just like, yo, let it ride. Like, And shout out Jared, because he's probably the most talented kid on the team. And he was just like, yo, we got to let it ride. It's going to pop back up. And I was like, you're probably right. But like, I worked at JP Morgan just a little bit too long to let that ride. So we got to move it to stable coin I'm like the boring old man in the room, but you got to run a business, not like a, a speculatory shop. But anyway, that's a fun part of kind of this market volatility to watch. And then on the flip side, when those that do hold or can hold and, you know, Ethereum, when it goes to 10K, they're going to be at 50, just tripled. So I don't know, it goes both ways, but volatility as a business operator, as you guys know, the goal is still camping that. So it's a very interesting challenge and a unique one for Web3.
0: We'll do carve outs and get you out of here, but I also want to get sappy for a second and, and just tell you how proud I am of you for starting this and excited I am for you to keep building this. I've known since we were running Fanatics together that I would, I was hoping that we would do something together in the future. And I still hope, but I, I think this is truly the perfect thing for you to be working on. And even going back to when we were writing our MBA essays, which I read every single one of yours and wrote through all of them. with. You were talking about wanting to be an investment banker after school, but I remember reading an essay that you wrote where you wrote about Drake's crew love song. And I still think about that and, and I'm very excited for you to keep working on this. Cause I think it's truly the perfect thing for you to be working on. So uh, I'm proud yeah, of you that, and excited to see you keep taking it forward, my
1: man. That that means a lot. And you guys are obviously a part of everything that we're building in EQ. And I appreciate you guys having me on, but it's funny because people, we, we like to go around the table just like at team dinners and talks and be like, and I, I want you guys to think about this. We'll do the carve outs. And then I want your answer is, is like, who would you be, be not starstruck by, but like, the you made it moment and for me it's funny that you mentioned crew love for me it's always been been drake or the weekend but i always say drake because not that i'd necessarily feel like i'd get starstruck i I don't know i I mean i probably could i probably would but it would be like it'd be a moment of wow like (laughs) like this is what i've been (laughs) angling towards more or less for the last decade and a half and this moment's really here so Working until we can manifest that moment, but that's mine. And I want to get your guys' after after we do the carve outs.
0: love that question. <laughs> I love that though. That's
1: great. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's a, it's a great one. All right, so I'll do my carve out real quick. Uh, carve out is last week or two weeks ago, I went to Disney World with my family. And Disney World is awesome. Even if you're an adult, it's so fun to go. So I'd highly recommend going to Disney World. And... I guess my like the first thing that comes to mind with that question is like, if I were on the Tim Ferriss show, it would be like that's crazy because it's like, I grew up listening to that show, and then oh my god, I'm on the show! Like that would be that would, not that like I aspire to. I think about it would like even being on the show, but more so it would be crazy to to do something like that. So yeah, that's, that's the first that's thing that that's comes a really to mind. Cool yeah, one. I love that. Yeah.
0: That's actually hilarious because my mind went in a very similar direction. I feel like there are <laughs> a lot of people who... Kyle, <laughs> we're such nerds. We just want
1: to be on the Tim Ferriss show. I want to I do the Tim Ferriss show with you guys. So if Tim's listening to this, we'll tag him in the show notes. We'll yeah, it. no, it's interesting
0: though. Like we've had people come to campus, like Toto Wolff was here last week from Mercedes F1. And I, I had a conversation with him after class. And He's a totally normal guy. And I feel like a lot of the experience I've had here is getting normalized to the fact that people are people and it's not that big of a deal. But to your point, there are certain like experiences that I think would be a, holy shit, how did I get here moment from when I was like listening to Tim Ferriss interviewing Derek Sivers when I was 22 to like, finally getting here, I think would be really good. So that would be sweet. I, I'll try to think of a better answer for, than that. I'll buy myself time by giving my carve out first. So I, I'm reading The Founders right now, which is the founding story of PayPal. It's an awesome book. I've loved it. And there are a ton of parallels actually to... Early Silicon Valley 1999 web 2.0.com boom to crypto today. And just thinking about like the founding story of Elon Musk and trying to get a lot of these financial infrastructures onto the internet in the first place, let alone like where we are today with DeFi, just making it decentralized. But it's fascinating and and awesome to read about the origin story of so many people who are influencing technology today. So I highly recommend that. I love
1: that. I love that. Very inspired by by those guys too. we were looking at the they're like the mafia picture the other day and we were like we gotta do something cool like that. So we're noodling on that. My carve out is I was telling you guys beforehand, I'm going to I guess the music adult version of Disneyland Seth, which is Coachella <laughs> in, in a month. And I've never been, I'm super excited. Yeah, it's the festival of festivals for for music fans, and it's the first one back in two years since the pandemic. So Should be good. Kanye is is headlining on Sunday, which I'm excited about. But on that note, I was going to say, I mentioned to you guys before, but the Netflix documentary Genius has been awesome, especially the the Mm -hmm. first two episodes where it's talking about kind of his childhood, upbringing, and walking into every studio, label, whatever, and just playing his music like through the wire and knowing what all those songs have become, family business, and what they obviously had meaning for him back in the day it's, it was really cool to see that and whether you're like a music artist or just like an entrepreneur or businessman or businesswoman or you're, you're pushing towards something really hard I, there's a special energy that, that like I really resonate with uh, in seeing someone who is just so confident about their craft and what they've created and and shameless that it's I don't know it makes me emotional because it's very encouraging and at the end of the day i the belief in in self is just so powerful. And that's something I aspire to. So that's what I've been inspired by lately and definitely encouraged everyone to check it out if they haven't.
0: I second that. I, I got goosebumps and chills just listening to him walking into the studio or, or to the record label and playing All Falls Down and realizing, oh my God, like, this is the origin story of this guy who This is the is first
1: his, time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He's trying to make his dream a reality and he hasn't done it yet. And we know the backstory of yeah, 20 years later, like he's made it happen, but It's so inspiring watching them go and make it happen. It's incredible. Highly recommend it.
1: Absolutely. No, and that's, I love it. We we try to capture a lot of content as a team at EQ. It's just cool. Also, not even like we're making a documentary, but it's just cool to look back and celebrate little wins and big wins or little losses, whatever, funny moments. I think it just, it's important to do that and keeps everyone grounded, but another reason why i love doing this with you guys it's a great way to catch up but it's uh, also a great way to memorialize where we are in our careers and how we're thinking and i'm happy to revisit it in five years when instagram is just the death star and and maybe they purchased eq at that point but they've just taken <laughs> over the entire metaverse and zuck is, is the emperor so i'll you to grow then but yeah this has been an absolute pleasure with you guys i really appreciate it thoughtful questions too love it this was, this was awesome. I feel like we could have gone for two more hours.
2: I have an interesting conversation. Yeah, so many more questions. So yeah.
1: We'll do a V2. We'll, we'll have to do a follow-up.
0: I would love that. We'll, we'll hold you to that. Ryan, we'll get you out of here. Awesome chatting today. Really appreciate you stopping by. And we are excited to chat again soon. Take care, buddy.
1: Yeah, thank you both.